0: What he's pointing back to is the East India Company as somehow a positive example of how to run Afghanistan. So he's literally proposing a colonial exploitation model to the Afghan president and to the American people who kicked the British out of America.
1: You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast. That brings you the stories from behind the
2: front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. Today we're going to talk about the future of Afghanistan, the role of private military contractors in modern war, and one PMC mogul in particular... Eric Prince. To help me sort through this topic, I'm joined by two guests this week. Both have been on the show before. The first is retired Green Beret and soft rep reporter Derek Gannon. The other is journalist and documentarian Robert Young Pelton. Robert, Derek, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you Uh, for having me. Absolutely. So, America has been at war in Afghanistan for more than sixteen years. Indications are that it's not going well. There are conflicting reports from the White House about how U.S. President Trump and his administration plan to handle that war. Uh, Today, the show is going to focus on one of those plans in particular. On May 31st of this year, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed authored by Eric Prince titled The MacArthur Model for Afghanistan, in which he calls for a viceroy to take over the country, literally the consolidation of power into one individual. In interviews, he's compared it to both MacArthur's occupation of Japan after World War II and the British East India Company's occupation of India. One wonders just who Mr. Prince thinks that lucky viceroy should be. This op-ed isn't just mission statement of a high-profile contractor. Prince is is a man with White House access and the ear of the president, which makes the plan frighteningly possible. He's also going on something of a lobbying tour with the plan right now, appearing at Oxford University and various Fox News programs to talk about it. So, Mr. Pelton, my first question is for you. You remind our audience exactly who Eric Prince is.
0: Well, Eric Prince um, first introduced himself to the American public in the opening chapter of my book, License to Kill, which was uh, an interview I did back in the mid-2000s, and uh, he had never done any major interviews, and I was profiling three companies who provided private military uh, resources, and the opening chapter basically lays out his grand vision for this private army, a 1,700-man battalion with aviation, humanitarian, all these things that are supposed to uh, be self-contained. Now, at that time, nobody twigged on what he was talking about because he was pitching it in Darfur. And uh, he was also mixing it with a brand-new gunship, a homemade gunship he had developed out of a Kaza 212 uh, airplane. So to answer your question, Eric Prince is many things. He is a gyro-gear of military hardware. He is a, a man who worships alfred sloan's gm model of vertical uh, verticalization of services and he's very much a man who once put into the field causes major disasters and heartburn for governments
2: and and right up here at the top i want to be i want to clarify something you've got a kind of a, a contentious relationship with mr prince correct and there's some legal issues
0: yeah eric came to me and uh with tears in his eyes and said, uh, "My background is in marketing and brand protection and creation, and he said, "You know, can you help me protect the Blackwater brand for my children?" And uh, I would not normally be in business with Eric Prince, but I said, "Look, I'm not going to mark it up or charge you any money, but what I'll do is I'll have a group of people put together a, a plan and protect the Blackwater brand until you can hand it over to your children and Eric then realized that he had signed a five-year contract giving me the exclusive rights to uh, all his personal projects and his uh, corporate projects. When one of his lawyers pointed that out, instead of doing it on a gentlemanly way by saying, hey, Robert, I think I made a mistake, he turned to artifice and deceit. So that's what the court case in Loudoun County this December is about.
2: All right. And you've actually you – know, Eric Prince is the founder of Blackwater, which became XE, which is, is now Academy. Is that correct? Is that what the the current name of the organization is called?
0: No, it's Constellus. So okay. his, uh, his buddy from Michigan, Andrew Deonkers, has constantly acted as a broker and a person who has done backdoor deals to keep control of Blackwater. So it's buried in a conglomerate owned by an investment company managed by Deonkers.
2: All right, and you, uh, in the early days when it was still called Blackwater, you kind of embedded with them, correct?
0: Yeah, I don't do embeds. I basically asked Eric what the most dangerous thing that Blackwater did was, and he jokingly said it was the uh, the run down Route Irish, about a 10-minute run, uh, to go to the airport twice a day to pick up people, and it was a group of misfits, and I'm being, you know, these were people that were kicked off the State Department details. And I seized on that as a perfect window to show people what it's like to risk your life every day for $600 and get shot at and blown up.
2: Uh, all right. Um, Derek, what have your interactions been with uh, Eric Prince and
1: Blackwater? Uh, I've never really had any interactions with Eric or EP himself ever. Uh, when, I was in, when I was in the Green Berets, we did a, I was in a specialized unit, and we were obviously – invited to go down to what was Blackwater compound in Moyoc, I believe, to train, to use their facilities. Uh, you know, they didn't have any instructors or anything, you know, instructing us. We went down there with our own, you know, base of instruction, and we, we used the, the Blackwater facilities, which were amazing. And that compound is absolutely amazing. It's a huge compound in the middle of nowhere uh, outside of Moyoc, North Carolina. And when we were there, I mean, the, you have to understand how big this compound is. They have, I, I believe, four drop zones where you can do airborne operations, landing zones where you can have helicopters come in, and I don't know how many, probably 10. I might be a little bit wrong with that, about 10 major buildings facilities that you can configure for uh, direct action CQB training and flat ranges and known distance ranges for, your, for sniping and for long-distance sh- uh, shooting. And what was interesting about it when we were down at Blackwater was the facilities where we stayed. Where they called the bunkhouses were actually just they were actually pretty nice. They were built kind of like hotels, and they were really I mean we wanted for nothing. Breakfast was catered, and uh, you know everything was just kind of laid out for us. It was it was really kind of what we called Gucci, if you will. Uh, and at the end of the day, at training, you know, they had food and everything prepared for us. And I do remember one specific day on a Saturday, because I think they were down there for about two weeks training. That a couple of us went around and we we were running around the compound, kind of just to go for a run, on it, obviously, but to also kind of check it out and to kind of uh, expand on what uh, Mr. Pelton said about the the uh, advancements of uh, Eric's uh, Casa 212. They have a massive Manufacturing facility on that compound, at least when I was there, where they had aircraft of, of various sizes and in between being constructed. Plus, they also were creating and manufacturing their own armored vehicles. I think they were called Mambas, I believe, or something similar to that. But what I found interesting was the, the airstrip that was actually there was large enough to accommodate at least a C 130 that could land and take off from there. Plus they had, you know, various Lear jets and everything, but what was towards the culmination of towards the end of our training, you know, we were honest, obviously told by our Sergeant major to like, you know, watch out for being recruited, you know, because there was a lot of guys that were from fifth group where that was my unit that I was uh, special forces group that I was currently working with down there are already kind of working as instructors slash, you know, private military contractors for the then Blackwater that were at the facility. And towards the end, they threw this huge barbecue, you know, everything spared, no expense, gave away hats, you know, all the lickies and chewies that everybody likes to get. And it was just a huge, huge, like, Hey, when, you know, when are you, when, when's your service date up? When, when are you getting out? You know, you should, are you thinking about reenlisting? You should, you should, Think about coming over and working for Blackwater, and uh, I just found that really interesting. It was a, it wasn't, it was a very passive. To then it just kind of towards the end of the night it was almost like an overt recruiting kind of like gala event. But I never, we were a tier one JSOC unit, so obviously Eric didn't come out of his, Eric probably wasn't there. He was probably lobbying for something in Washington. But none of the big headshed folks came out of their Crystal Palace to come say hello to us because we obviously weren't a national asset, like, like, like JSOC units were.
2: All right. I'll, I have, the next question is to both of you. Um, you've both kind of been in places where Blackwater and other private military contractors operate, is there any material difference that either of you have seen between uh, how Mr. Prince does business
0: and how other PMCs do business? I can, you know, I've been with a number of private military groups And um, what Eric does is conceptually come up with very solid ideas. He goes out to very talented people with lots of experience, puts together PowerPoints, ideas, pitches it as a fixed price contract to solve a certain problem. But, uh, you know, as Derek mentioned, when he said tier one, there's a very limited pool of talented people that you can strip the assets from the government and resell back to the government. So if you were to say to me, okay, on on the agency side – when Eric provided security for the CIA bases along the border, uh, he quickly ran out of talented people. And uh, obviously, the, you go towards the money, so people would rather make twelve hundred to six hundred dollars a day uh, with clearances. But on the other side of the coin, where you have to do fixed facility or convoy or things like that, uh, you know, it's it goes down to the lowest bidder. It's it's, a, it's an economic model that brings us Ugandans, Bangladeshis, you know, people from developing nations that are getting paid horrific fees. And this is what we're seeing now, is is that the economic model destroys the moral model. So the idea that talented American soldiers now retire and then go work for a private contractor with the same quality and skills has been erased by basically saying a contractor is more likely to be from a poor country than from Michigan or Florida.
2: And and so that's kind of, The real difference then that you're seeing with Blackwater is that he's more likely to recruit those kinds of people?
0: No. The difference is that the concepts that he initially presents, for example, he's presenting aviation response packages uh, training packages at the brigade level. Uh, These are already been done by people. You know, DynCorp uh, is one of the companies. Uh, DynCorp is a very dull, boring, legally uh, compliant company that does a lot of work for the government. Eric Prince has been caught violating federal laws and had to basically buy off the government to the tune of 42 or $49 million so he wouldn't go to jail. Uh, in other words, there's a, there's a very, very different modus operandi between the way Eric Prince works and some of these duller, you know, less uh, flamboyant companies. So when Eric Prince is pitching an idea, when you look at the PowerPoint, it has been developed by somebody with good solid military skills, when you look at the execution of Eric's projects, and I'm talking about R2 in the UAE, the PMPF project in Somalia, uh, they, they dissolve very quickly. And there's been disasters internally that employees try to reach out to the media to say, look what happened in South Sudan, or, you know, why did all these people quit last year? And there's even leaked emails from Otabi, the UAE ambassador in which, Former friends and employees of Eric's are saying, I hope he doesn't get into trouble because he's twice violated uh, UN arms embargoes laws, both in Somalia and Libya. So all I'm saying is that if I go to a traditional PMC provider, and there's nothing wrong with PMCs, and I say, look, I need a guy to provide security or to change the oil in my generator, there's typically not a problem with that. But when you go into this very high level sort of bad history book reading concepts, uh, they're destined for trouble.
2: Derek, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Uh, the talent pool, uh, I do believe Mr. Pelt is spot on with that. I, I, I noticed I had some interactions. Now, I can't say if they were Blackwater, Dynacore, Khaki, or whoever else was d- during in in Iraq, because that's where I spent most of my time, was in Iraq during the heyday of the, uh, the private military uh, push where everybody was making money off the government and everyone was having a great time. I did interact with some of these guys, uh, in Iraq, and a lot of them, we, a lot of us really thought that these guys were just out of control. They had no oversight whatsoever to us. Now, they probably had something along the lines of, of some sort of corporate rules of engagement, but a lot mm-hmm. of these guys just were kind of running around like cowboys uh, in, the early, in the early years of, of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And we really didn't have that much interaction with them other than an errant gunshot here or there, into a crowded street or them just, you know, running in like it was Fast and the Furious through, uh, you know, Route Irish, because Route Irish was pretty bad during that. Um, that could have been Blackwater. But to kinda wanna, I kind of want to tap on what Mr. Pelton said about the talent pool. I, I believe he's absolutely correct. I think after, after that great, the great unpleasantness that Blackwater got into where, in the early 2000s, where uh, a couple of their contractors killed about, I think, 17 civilians, uh, they, Blackwater and, and private military corporations started to get a, a really, really critical eye put onto them. And we started seeing that he, he Mr. Pelton's absolutely right. Eric, EP or, or Eric himself really wants those tier one special operations, soft SF type of mentality, uh, trained guys to be really kind of the, the forefront kind of team managers on a lot of these PMCs. And he, it, But unfortunately, that is a very small talent pool. And that talent pool does get pulled away to more established companies like Blackbird, Raytheon, things like that, where we've, we've worked with them exclusively through government DOD contracts. So, of course, it's easy for these careerists to, to just go right into a retired, retire from military, go into these, well, more established Department of Defense, uh, you know, sanctioned companies when you go to work for Blackwater, you could be you could be a Green Beret like myself standing next to a guy who spent three years in the 82nd Airborne Division and is now doing the same mission, same operation that you are, who has, you know, collectively three years compared to my 18 in combat zones. So now you're basically managing guys who have no oversight uh, running around. So I think what I think what Eric Prince has done and I believe what Mr. Pelton hit on it was that, you now take guys who have those special tra- specialized training and then you put them in charge of doing a corporate, if you will, foreign internal defense program with the Ugandans or what Eric tried to set up in South Sudan with uh, with uh, the macher issue down in there with the rebellion that was going on in the late 2000s down there, where I believe he also did get caught uh, trying to sell military grade equipment to both sides. And I think the the state department shut that down as well before you could break the law again. I couldn't be wrong with that, but my experiences with, with, you know, with contractors has been, it's been a mixed kind of a mixed bag because I do have friends that do contract and and I, I do have friends that do a very good job at contracting, make a good living out of it. And a lot of people are like, well, why don't you just, why don't these guys retire and then go right back into doing the same exact thing that they were doing, in special operations, I said, well, you know, think about it. Some of these guys spend 24, 20 to 24 years doing this exact work for minimal amounts of money, only to be enticed from a contract company making 1,200, 1,300 a day. You know, 60 days on 60 days in country working 30 days off wherever they're, you know, wherever the company can send them. So it's, you get a 60, 30, 60, 30 for a year. You could come back with quite a chunk of change tax free. As long as you survive whatever they're doing whatever the contract is.
2: All right. I want to ask a big picture question. And Mr. Pelton, if you can start us off, what does Eric Prince want? I'm not just talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about big picture.
0: Uh, So this is where we really need to keep the focus. Two things. The first thing is when you change a national foreign policy into a mercantile event, you lose every shred of respectability and accountability for the end result. And that means if I hire a cleaning crew to clean my house and they do a crappy job, they can just quit. They they don't necessarily have to keep at it until they figure out how to do it right. So we're, we're asking the Afghans, which is a democratically elected government running a nation of 25 million with lots of European donors besides us, to allow in a mercantile, lethal operation to kill dissident members. Now, I'm not supporting the Taliban. I'm just saying that there are numbers of people that form militant groups and go against the government uh, that may or may not be around a year from now or two years from now or may get into a horrific civilian casualty event in which we as the country take the blame But the actual perpetrator can simply dissolve his company because it'll be registered offshore and just quit and go work somewhere else. So that's one thing. The second thing is Eric Prince has a very interesting history of being involved in clandestine disinformation operations. And that goes back to when he had Greystone and uh, some very senior members of the CIA working for him, like Kofor Black, Rob Reicher, Reicher, and they were. Engaged in trying to start a war in Iran under Dick Cheney. Now, most people would say, What? (laughs) There is a political and religious agenda buried inside Eric Prince's activities that people don't quite catch. They know it exists, they've seen documents, they've heard about it, but there are some very serious goings on. His father was a very well respected man who created a business from scratch. After his first heart attack, he aligned himself. With the extreme right, in other words, um, anti-gay, anti-abortion, family values, all that kind of thing. Uh, Eric perpetuates that through, with his mother and his family, and he is linked with people that you might call them neocons, you might just call them, you know, right-wing, sort of Reagan-esque folks like Ollie North, and and their goal is ultimately to take down the the great Satan states. In this case, it's Iran. The singular focus of Eric Prince is is Iran. And a lot of the covert things he was doing while he was disappearing were to support uh, military activities in North Africa, in the Middle East, as basically a straw man. And if you remember the whole Iran-Contra mindset, where you had sort of a shadow government doing things that, that were theoretically deniable, this is what he wants to reintroduce to the Trump administration.
2: Derek, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I agree with him. Uh, I'll even take it a step further. I believe Eric Prince is... is, I believe he thinks he's a part of some sort of little-known U.S.-based sect of the Templar Knights, to be honest with you. Uh, He's very into that whole Templar Knight, Templar Shield type of mentality, as as well as some other uh, retired, I believe, retired generals were in special operations and in the United States military itself. But I have heard rumors and talked to many different people that have had time with eric prince or or, or assume that they know him and he is is very he is very 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 conservatively religious and yes his his main goal has always been to rid the world of uh you know islam if you will. i'm just going to say it islam if you will i mean it's kind of what he was accused of down in south sudan where he was supporting a the rebel movement that were very anti-islamic uh, proliferation down there and you're going get pinched for that but yeah that's I agree with that I think he, there, there is a there is a religious undertone that nobody wants to people see it but nobody wants to talk about it because then we have you, you know then we have to really look at what, what is what is what is extremism is it just on one side or is it in both sides That's my opinion but yeah I've, I've heard the rumors and also talked to people that believe that. Eric Prince does have a, a very, very, very interwoven religious ideals into his company, into his company model.
0: And, and keep in mind, the the idea of a private military corporation actually goes back to the ancient knights that formed the first banks, which were the Templars. Were the Templars? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can actually create your own self-funded military operation that is transnational, very much like ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda, but you can do it as, as a corporation. And this is the thing that people try to get their head around, but have a hard time thinking it through. Can Eric Prince go to the UAE, find private backers, use uh, covert either agency money or Saudi money, create a military made out of mercenaries who are actively engaged in combat, find commercial aircraft that are adapted with hard points hiring ex-military. Is this possible? It's like, no, it's actually happening now. So I, I think the, the scrutiny should be put on just how far off the map has Eric gone in places like Libya, Yemen, Somalia. The evidence is all there. He actually is very proud of, of making documentaries and, and uh, hiring journalists to write stories about it. So he's already done it. The question is, if we then invigorate him in Afghanistan, what happens next? Do we create a a monster that is doing something completely different than what we originally hired it to do. All
2: right. Well, let's get into this. What, what is his plan
0: for Afghanistan? What is it that he's pitching here? So <laughs> Eric has a machine gun that just fires things at the wall. <laughs> he, he's always told me that, you know, he just needs one good idea. Like his father came up or not his father, but his employees came up with the lighted sun visor, which then GM, integrated into the cadillac in the 80s which then expanded into prince auto manufacturing providing all the interiors as as a turnkey product so he knows that when his dad did a ham deboning machine or a sock drawer that has a built-in light that that failed but if you keep coming up with ideas one will stick secondly he wants to verticalize military provision and that means everything the aircraft the people the logistics even even the hardware and the guns, he wants to make and sell all that stuff to nations. So the Afghan plan is his big moment in history. You know, he's always believed he's going to die young because genetically his family you know, has heart problems and they collapse at early age. So it's very, very driven to show that he can independently conduct a war if you just let him alone and just give him enough money. So he's got a number of things. He's got FID, which is foreign internal defense, being conducted by contractors. Well, that's not a big deal. That's already been done. He's got aviation packages where he says he can respond anywhere in Afghanistan within one hour with close air support. That's BS, but it sounds good. He's got ideas for logistics, in other words, being able to move and supply the Af army, which I'd like to see that happen without corruption in Afghanistan. But these are all good ideas. These are ideas that have been done before. And then this viceroy idea is sort of like when you talk to a guy and he looks you straight in the eye and he seems very earnest and experienced. Suddenly he says something. He said, are you saying? He's not not (laughs) suggesting a Paul Bremer Bremer type person uh, to run the country. And we all know what Paul Bremer did with his edicts. Uh, launching the insurgency and basically causing a lot of American deaths. He's then saying, let's just put all our faith and trust in one human being that's not an Afghan, and let's just uh, let him run with it. Now, to me, I would say, okay, get out of the room. That was a great idea. But now he, what he's pointing back to is the East India Company as somehow a positive example of how to run Afghanistan. So he's literally proposing – a colonial exploitation model to the Afghan president and to the American people who kicked the British out of America as the way forward. So then I keep going, okay, this is a comedy. Let's just shut this down and let's talk to somebody else. And that's why people like Mattis, who went into Fluidia because of Eric's mess ups, is just looking at this guy like, get out of here. But his relationship with Steve Bannon is very tight. They they work on a lot of you know underhanded stories and disinformation programs. They also know Rebecca Mercer, so they're pitching this idea as so outrageous that nobody will pay attention to it
2: but again, this is a guy that has that does have White House access, right I mean his sister is who is his sister my uh, boss yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's not like this plan isn't being listened to he's on he's on Fox News doing little five minute segments talking this thing up and and i I want to circle back around to the duchy East India or the the East India Company, because I think uh, that's that's important because it wouldn't be the first time that the British East India Company was in Afghanistan, right? They fought a war there in the 19th century, or they were part of one.
0: No, to understand that concept, what the colonial powers did is hire enterprising people, like Eric Prince, and this is his role model. He wants to be the John Smith that goes to the Newark country, you know. They would hire, sorry, an experienced... Military commander, retired, and say, go take a bunch of soldiers, go train up some sepoys, you know, these are the locals, on a 1 to 12 or 1 to 100 ratio, depending on the country. Go find some nice emperor to sign a trade deal with, and go kick the hell out of the other people who oppose him. And then when you've got enough land under your control, and you can show a profit, the British government or the Dutch government will come in, sign a charter with you, and suddenly we'll have a colony but it's already up and running. This was the idea of these uh, private companies.
2: And he, and he wants to recreate that model. How is it any different than kind of what we're doing now? Because we're just, we would just be giving one person carte blanche?
0: No, this is ridiculous. Okay, do some homework. But the bottom line is this. We're fighting three wars in Afghanistan. We have a counterterrorism mission, which is the people that dropped the Moab, and this is a very well-funded uh, kill ISIS, kill Al-Qaeda global battle that we have and it's going very well we have a NATO uh, program which is really a sta- stabilization and peacekeeping mission which is called Resolute Support and, and this is the, the thing where people have cappuccinos and argue about you know what schools to build and whatever but this has shrunk dramatically and most of the, our troops over there don't even go out of the base. The third war we're fighting is on the political front in which we're trying to prop up a a former American, you know, President Ghani, and a democratic country that is literally falling apart as we speak. So in order to come up with a solution, we have to get the facts right. Now you opened the show by saying we've been at war for seventeen years. No, we've been at war in Afghanistan for thirty-eight years. President Carter <laughs> signed a presidential finding to support the Mujahideen, you know, out of Pakistan to fight. The Russian-influenced government. So, we've actually won and lost in Afghanistan, and we've been there for 38 years. Derek, do you have anything to add?
1: No, that's actually. I was just as soon as he said 38 years, the first person I thought of was uh, was it Charlie Wilson. Uh, Charlie Wilson's War. I thought, yeah, that's he's right. We've been in and out of Afghanistan for 30 plus years.
0: Yeah, we, we, we were in the fifties building houses, and uh, you know, down in Kandahar, we actually created these poppy fields because of the irrigation system we put in. And in other words, we're we're not we're not newcomers to Afghanistan. But to solve the problem, let's define the problem accurately.
2: All right, I want to let's I want to drill into two different aspects of his plan. The the both of these are mentioned in his Wall Street Journal op-ed, and he keeps hitting both of them in interviews. The first is rules of engagement. And every time he, he gives an interview about the rules of engagement in Afghanistan, he he has kind of the same line that a soldier under fire shouldn't be calling a lawyer 500 miles away to ask whether or not it's okay to to attack or respond. Do we have any idea what he wants to change the rules of engagement to?
0: Yeah. It's, it's, first of all, it's fiction. Uh, a lot of things that Eric says in public are demonstrably false uh, and and just cause more confusion when people listen to him. In Afghanistan, we have a very successful uh, program in training uh, the commandos and the Afghan special forces. These guys are airlifted in. They have uh, complete authority to call in air support. Uh, There's no lawyer in Washington talking Dari or Pashto to a local air controller. What he's trying to say is our troops, and he is absolutely misinformed when he says our troops are fighting war there. Our troops are not lined up, you know, fighting the Taliban. Uh, we're we're assisting and training very competent Afghans to go in and risk their lives. And I've done many of these missions where we go in with a group of special forces, a small ODA. Uh, we rehearse for a day, we take the commandos, we draw up the village in chalk, and we we practice breaching, you know, who's, who's doing top cover for sniping. We jump in the, the helos, we drop off in the mountaintop at 3 in the morning. We have... Drones, we have gunships, we have, I mean, so it's, it's absolutely beautiful how much technology is up in the air. Uh, we can see every single member of the village. We can see every gunman on every roof. He can be neutralized within about three seconds. When I say, hey, what's that building over there? A guy reads out a number and this giant IR light comes out of the gunship and lights up the house like it's daylight. So we know what we're doing and we do it very, very well. The thing is, there's a limited number of commando groups, there's a limited amount of airlift. And, of course, we need to put in more trainers. And what I'm saying is that this is already happening. So when Eric says, I need this, no, I'm not ever going to put that in Eric's hands. And And I don't want a contractor to make a lethal decision in a democratic country like Afghanistan that might affect our relationship with the government and the actual troops that are there. So, so these are anyway. I'm going on, but I'm just saying that we already do exactly what he says we should do there.
2: And Derek, that kind of speaks to what you were talking about earlier about some of the the missteps that Eric Prince's companies have made before.
1: Yes, and that was a really good briefback, Mr. Pelton. That's exactly how that's a direct. That's exactly how a direct action operation actually occurs. That's it, it, lights come out of nowhere. It's an absolutely amazing. The U.S. military might and technology that, that special operations and special forces can actually bring down on one target. However, that's a small, very small group of people, very small group of people within the United States military. Most of the military actually doesn't even get that. And Eric Prince is wrong. There is, every time we deployed, our rules of engagement was clearly established. We don't call back to a lawyer. And most of major commands in the United States military don't have any lawyers that they wait. Well, what do we do? How do we get clearance? I. I don't know where he got that from. I think maybe that was during, I believe, the Obama administration uh, transition from the Bush to Obama administration, where everybody kind of had a stand down for two weeks in Iraq. I remember that being a part of that. That wasn't because uh, the Obama administration didn't want to fight the war. It's just that they had to revamp those those rules of engagements from a from a national level down to the the MACOMs down in Iraq
0: and Afghanistan. Let, let me just – I think we know what he's talking about. You remember the incident in Kunduz where they called in CAS and they hit the MSF hospital? Yeah, their, I, their actually, result? yeah.
1: That's okay. So if he's talking about that, that's – how many incidents is uh, – is, that's, a, that's, a, that's a unique inc- – I do remember that, Mr. Poe. Actually, I do.
0: Yeah. yeah I so do remember. I, I, I worked with two four-stars in Afghanistan after uh, what they call CIVCAS, which is Civilian ca- Casualties – where a, a, an action, whether I think it was Marsak and Shindad, killed 125 people, and their after action report said it was 12. We proved that that was wrong. They then shut down all airstrikes because they had to be approved, right? And then remember there was another yeah. incident. So, anyway, so what happens is after you have these major civilian casualties, they, they shut everything down and they bottleneck it, and then they go back to the, the normal. Uh, right. Routine. And it's
1: a, it's a knee jerk because they're like, oh, oh God. Uh, this is this is now in the media. It's a knee-jerk reaction. Everybody gets shut down. Everybody gets yeah, shut so down. Everything. Everything is.
0: Let's flip it around. So, what is Eric famous for? He's his famous for having his employees kill murder seventeen people in <laughs> Mr. Square. Yes. Uh, so on a State yeah. Department moves. Had there been a lawyer in the middle, he would have said, No, no, do not kill those people. You right. know, wave off. And this, this is this was humorous about Eric Prince. He's trying to. Reset the narrative to make him look like the good guy when in the actual fact those lawyers were put in place because of Eric.
1: Yes, and that's the scary part is that he's briefing – he's, he's informing the major – the public who's like, yeah, let's put him as a viceroy. you know, And he basically is saying, well, the Mil- United States military is being – his hands are tied behind his back because of legal ease. when in simple fact he's saying send us in and we're guns hot. We're guns free. We can do whatever we want when he, a private corporation that deals with military – you know, application should have as many lawyers as it does weapon systems in its arms room. He's kind of presenting this, we send us in, you know, we won't have our hands tied. We're kind of weapons free. We can do what we want. Plus his, his next greatest thing he did on Fox news the other day was you send me in and my, and my group in my, my private military. in. that's less Americans boots on the grounds in Afghanistan and less likely to have Americans die. Well, okay. That sounds great. That sounds amazing. Yeah, let's let's pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. But then we're going to put in U.S. contractors training up local nationals to be guns free without any without any legal ramifications. That doesn't make any sense. That sounds like a, a bad situation in the making, like a very bad go to.
2: All right. The other the other aspect of this that he's that he's touting as a positive is the financial aspect he's saying that he can get this done or a good company should be able to get this done for under $10 billion. Do we have any sense that that is in any way accurate?
0: Well, let just add one thing. What he's also saying is that we've got a trillion dollars or the Afghans have a trillion dollars worth of resources in the ground. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a, a financial calculation that shows that this is a profitable venture. I mean, this is inherent in every one of these presentations. And the interesting thing is I just spent uh, two months doing a lot of research on the, mining industry in Afghanistan. And what's fascinating is that the major mines like Messanyag have already been sold off to Chinese uh, partners. And these these partners have chosen not to lift a finger, but it's all part of the the one road, uh, great belt, whatever you want to call it, concept that Eric is also mining on the other side, meaning that he's got a China-based company in which he suddenly switched to security provision for the Chinese in the region, in the contentious region of West Turkestan or area around Arumqi, Pakistan. So he's, he's playing multiple cards in multiple games, hoping that it all comes together for his satisfaction. So when you said that, okay, he can do this for this much money, he's also saying, but there's a profit to it. Made there if I'm successful. Uh, Somebody really needs to hold Eric Prince to the fire and say, "Can I see all your corporate assets? Can I see where your income comes? Can you? Can I check your loyalties to see who you actually are working for?" And and this is something that hasn't been suggested yet. No.
2: Why? Why doesn't anyone do this? Why doesn't anyone hold him to the fire?
0: Well, (laughs) when I first interviewed him, you know, I asked him why he was talking to me, and you know, not the New York Times or whatever, and. And he said, "Well, you know, he's a fan of my book." In other words, he he is a child at heart. He is a guy who, uh, in his defense, has great ideas that come from other people that he sort of skims through. And, and when he approached me about his Somali anti-piracy project, he had just read a book about the, the the very foundation of America, in which we sent over a a navy ship and we thumped the the pirates of Tripoli and da da da. And I'm like. That's Tripoli, dude. That's not Somalia. <laughs> so he has these ideas, um, very wacky misreadings of history books. And at the same time, he's a deeply bitter man. He's very, very bitter about the way he was treated by Hillary Clinton. Uh, he's literally been in exile you know, for eight years in his bat cave coming up with ideas. And he's been doing strange things in strange countries. And he's always just one step ahead of the U.N. sanctions And and he glorifies himself as being sort of a pirate, a mercenary, a romantic figure. And I just caution people that Eric Prince himself is a normal person. But then when he gets this mantle of power put on his shoulders, he suddenly turns into that guy that we all think only exists in comic books.
2: And – what exactly is that guy, and what have his? We've we've kind of danced around some of his previous failures. That are, I'd like to drill into them as we as we kind of wrap up the episode to really bring this home for people. You know what what happened in South Sudan. What what has happened in places where where Prince has gotten more or less what he wanted.
0: Well, well, South Sudan began with a very strange incident. Uh, he was asked to set up a private military company, the same one he's been pitching over and over again in the UAE, it's called reflex responses. He uh, very clearly distances himself from that idea, but this was set up by the UAE, some say with Saudi assistance funding, to then start a commotion, either on Kish Island or some border area, that would then trigger a war with Iran, Uh, we would have to go in and rescue them. He was then sliced off of that, he was busted in the New York Times. He moved to Somalia to set up an anti piracy force. And I had a ground network in Somalia, had about uh, 75 people. And he was one of my biggest subscribers. And he was very interested in commercial opportunities in Somalia, which is weird. And secondly, wiping out the pirates. So he hired all the EO guys that I know, Executive Outcomes from South Africa. And I used to call his camp like the retirement camp for mercenaries because they were all there. And They smuggled in helicopters, all kinds of things, and then they went live and they chased after a pirate who had hijacked a UAE ship, and they were immediately shut down by the UN, threatened with sanctions, and sanction means you can't travel, you can't transfer money. It's quite serious. He then pretended like nothing happened, abandoned his people in the field, which you can imagine 1,200 unpaid Somali gunmen and about 200 very sweaty white men. Uh, It it was not pretty. He then went to South Sudan as part of a $500 million investment fund and wanted to build a refinery in the north. And it's about a $120 million refinery. Convinced, once again, these are all good ideas, right? South Sudan needed to refine its own products. The only minor detail is that they had sold all their oil to Khartoum to pay for their independence. So the idea that they were siphoning off their own product and selling it local didn't make a lot of people happy. So when Rick Mashar fled and Kier suddenly realized that his country was falling apart, he leaned on Eric, who had a logistics company based out of Kenya, uh, to allegedly provide transshipment of weapons and also medevac of wounded troops. Now, I'll just tell this as an apocryphal, apocryphal story from somebody who was there Uh, He tried to go in to medevac some people, and his planes are painted white, and they shot the hell out of those planes, the rebels did, thinking that, okay, this is Keir bringing weapons via the U.N., because the rebels confused the white FSG planes with U.N. planes. The rebel commander said, if any U.N. planes take off or lands in this area, we're going to shoot them down. Now, you can imagine the impact to the U.N. of that kind of screw-up. So... Bottom line is that he then snagged a deal to do – and I'm using air quotes – pipeline security, and he right. tried to sell his air tractors, mm-hmm. and weaponized tractors to then fight the rebels under the guise of protecting the pipelines. And by this time, the U.S. was just pissed. I mean, they'd already gone through the Somalia thing where there's a, a, a blanket arms embargo, and now Eric pops up again. And once again, he vanished from South Sudan. So these – and he's, of course, supporting activities with General Haftar. And I'll say these are all allegedly, allegedly. Uh, he's part of that jiggery-pokery thing where they sell air tractors to Jordan. They donate them to the UAE. The UAE donates them to Libya. So he's got them in Eritrea. He's got them in Benina, in Libya. So it goes on and on. So I'm just saying that there is a lot more under the, under the covers with Eric Prince's business activities than meets the eye.
2: Derek, do you have anything to add to that?
0: That's actually the
1: that's actually exactly the rundown for South Sudan that I'm aware of. He just disappeared. he got 200 I think he got 200 to 350 million out of the 500 million uh, contract uh, through Kier because Kier and his group shut it down, shut the payments down because the, the track the the air tractors that he was flying around I don't remember the, the nomenclature the air tractors that started to show up weren't weaponized and. Through what Kier said, when he had secret meeting or not secret, but closed door meetings with Eric, was that Eric promised him weapons of war, tons of them. The, these air, aircraft would be dropping, you know, laser guided bombs, uh, ISR missions, everything that he could think of under the sun to, to destroy Macher or Macher. I think that's how you say his name. I always screw it up. Uh, and Moshar, Rak thank you. Um, I know you met him, so tell him I'm sorry. By his last name, uh, <laughs> and he it was all under the guise of what uh, Mr. Pelton just said was, was pipeline security for uh, I think it was uh, Sino, uh, Sinochem, one of the Chinese, one of the larger Chinese uh petrochemical companies that are in that they're working Sudan and South Sudan. And so he kind of shoehorned himself into a, into a, an, an issue that Sudan and South Sudan were in the middle of with Khartoum and Kier was one of the other reasons why a lot of the rebels were pissed was because the South wasn't getting any of the money that they thought it was going to be getting from the North, from Khartoum, from the oil sales. So that's a part of the, the issue with some of the, the rebellion. But Eric started delivering these, these systems and started smuggling in some of these weapon systems. And then the key regime shut the payments down, Eric disappeared. He just, I'm out. He got 200, 350 million out of it, and he took off. And uh, you're right, Mr. Mr. Pelton is also right. From what I from what I've researched and read is that yeah, he's he's been able to wash his hands and his these airframes through several Gulf states, and and, and somehow they're ending up in Eritrea and Libya and even in I think believe I believe, and this is a rumor that some of these planes that actually have actually been seen or in and around the Sinai. As, as recently as in around the Sinai, just doing all these uh, supposedly ISR missions. So his, he's, his, he really likes the Gulf states. He really likes North Africa and the Middle East region. He really wants to be kind of like the, the guiding, if we're going to go with the Templar Knight type of stuff, I think he wants to be kind of like that, that, that lit, lit sword that guides everybody into, into the, the right path in the Middle East and kind of controls that. And to go back to you, Matthew, to go back to your questions, that, uh, uh, what Mr. Pelton actually said is he, he's, he likens himself to a comic book character. I think Eric thinks he's more like Tony Stark, but he actually kind of comes across as, uh, as, you know, sort of like a, a bad guy in itself, uh, like Lex Luthor almost. I mean, without the, without the bald head, he, just, he has all these ideas. He just kind of hip fires and thinking he's like, this is going to be the one that kills Superman. And it really it never really kind of pans out. It never really does.
0: Well, Lex Luther was bitter, if I remember correctly. And this is this is the key emotional element in a lot of Eric's um, uh, verbal statements is that he's angry at something and that he's bitter and that he's doing this because those other people don't know what they're doing. And uh, I think that's ultimately what leads to the meltdown of these projects.
2: All right. I think that will about wrap it up. Do either of you have anything else you think we should be cover we should cover in this discussion or talk about before I kind of say our goodbyes?
0: Matthew, I just want to say one thing as, as sort of a a seasoned analyst and viewer of these things. We are actually watching an American presidential administration consider secret unpublished plans that will guide the future of our country and the safety of our soldiers in foreign countries. I, I have never seen an outsider present whatever plans they are that don't at least get exposed to public scrutiny or at least extra expert commentary that, that make us feel comfortable that these are these are the right things to do and this, and this is what bothers me the most about this this new idea of let's write an op-ed and then call Steve Bannon. And go meet with mattis and pitch this wacky idea and then let's get on a plane and talk to ghani president ghani pitch this wacky idea and then do the american public ever get a chance to review or decide on whether this is a good idea or not and i say that in prince's favor if he's got a great idea let's see it all right
2: robert young pelton Derek gannon thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me my pleasure Hey there, War College listeners. Thanks for hanging in there over the break and listening to one more rerun before we get things kicking in the new year. Uh, There's a lot of changes coming. One of the big changes is teased in this old episode, which is why I picked it. That'll make sense next week. I promise. See you soon.